0: This is Dave Brodbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is biology uh, and also science. I
1: took a trip the other day. Down the road, 10 blocks from my home. Now I feel like yesterday. <laughs> All right.
0: By the way, who hates the people that give out the toothbrushes?
1: Right? Yeah.
0: Usually it's a dentist, so they probably get the toothbrushes for free already. I always feel like I should stand up in front of their house with like shots of five cryptos corn syrup. It's pretty bad. Or well, the people that show up to your door about 9.30, they smell like weed, and they're about 19. <laughs> it's like, dude, really? Just go to McDonald's. Um, right, so speaking of weed, uh, let's talk about taking drugs. So the behavior itself of drug taking is actually kind of odd behavior. Okay? And I mean drug taking for Recreation. You're not avoiding pain, necessarily. Yes, I know, existential pain, perhaps. But it's not like it's something... Typically, we do things because they feel good, and we don't do things that make us feel bad. Yet, so sort of of a utilitarian thing. You're not really avoiding pain. It doesn't affect all people the same way, either. Some people can have a couple of drinks every night. Some people can... Go out and literally like go binge drinking on a Saturday and never drink again the rest of the week. Some people can get high, and then the next day they're fine. No big deal. Other people devote their lives to it. right? And it depends on the person. So somebody, for instance, there are people who get up in the morning and put rye on their fruit loops. Right? There are people who literally get wasted for everything and every opportunity. Most people aren't like that. Most of us aren't. Most of us are responsible. Even when you're a kid, you're responsible enough. Most of us, you can do whatever you want. I, I can hardly see you anyway, so you just cut in kind of front and sell so the deal. Um, so it affects everybody differently. And you don't actually need drugs. Right? As much as those of you who smoke cigarettes, there are times that you need a cigarette. Or sometimes you'll say, I need a drink. You don't really need it. It's not oxygen. It's it's, it's not food. It's not water. So the behavior itself is sort of odd, on, on the surface at least. Oh, well, then if you have a problem with it, obviously you have a problem with being a good person. You're obviously immoral. You have little willpower. And you're just a bad person. And that's the way people thought about drug taking for the longest time. In fact, some people still do think that way. Right? There certainly are people who think that way, still. Look at words we have for, for people who have drug problems. Junkie. <laughs> that doesn't sound complimentary. Right? We call an alcoholic a drunk. Again, it's not complimentary. And it's not even neutral. It's just like junkie. Like you're just junk. You're just not useful. A yeah, exactly. Literally a synonym for things you throw away. Right? So a lot of people you know, no, we're all enlightened now. A lot of people still think this way that you're just a bad person. Now, we know that's obviously ridiculous. So what could explain this strange behavior? It's a disease. It must be a disease. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a disease. Yeah. It's not your character or your morality. It must be that you you're sick. you're sick, it's in, you're sick. Oh, I'm sorry, disorder. We, we do not say disease. You have disorder. Actually,
1: um, sign is
0: still here. So that's a disease. Must be a disease. A lot of people still think that. Very common
1: view, exceedingly.
0: It starts out really with the idea of quote, alcoholism. As a rule, I don't trust anything that's called an ism. It doesn't matter what the ism is, as a rule, not always. tend to be ideological. Like but it's the idea, look, look, people, I know we think the idea of prohibition is bizarre, and it is. As we know in this country, we just stopped having prohibition against marijuana as well, because that doesn't work. But you've got to understand, in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, alcohol, especially in North America, but also in Europe, was a real problem, like a real societal problem. On the level of what we think about the opioid crisis today, except everybody had access to alcohol. People were dying. Uh, people were, there was crime rampant. Seriously, like it was horrible. So people said, something must be wrong with these people. Because most people, you know, people don't behave like this. Then they start drinking liquor, intoxicating liquors. They start drinking intoxicating liquors. God, darn it! Some of these are just for me, apparently. Um, and so you, maybe it's a disease. You know, I guess you got to understand, in, in, in the thinking of the time, and we don't tend to think about this this way, the, the the quote progressive movement are the people who bring and I'm count myself moderate in the modern day in that sort of camp. Probably. The progressive movement were the people that were talking about prohibition. This wasn't the right wing. This wasn't the traditionalists. This was people who were like give women the vote and also stop drinking, equal rights for everybody. Also bad alcohol. Like th- th- those were going together. It's a different time. And alcohol was a real problem. Watch the Ken Burns documentary, Prohibition. If you have Netflix. It's killer. It's a Ken Burns documentary, so it's a lot of slow moving p- p- pans over photos with actors reading letters. But it's really good. <coughs> so people look at alcoholism, uh, I, well, I not alcoholism, whatever, and they say this has got to be a disease of some sort. Okay? And you hear that today. The official position of many organizations is that having a drinking problem is a uh, quote disease. Okay, I have a question for you. What's the disease mechanism? And you can't answer that because no one knows. Now I'm not saying because we don't know means it's not a disease. I'm saying that something that we thought of as a disease about hundred years ago and people have been doing research on, it's funny they haven't figured that yet. Just strikes me on. Right, so we don't know the disease mechanism. I'm not saying it doesn't mean it's not a disease, I'm saying it's like, why haven't has that been figured out yet? Huh. It's odd. You'll hear a lot of people say, but it's genetic. Which, sure there's genetic components as you we know hope you've gathered by now that from you know everything's interaction with genetics and environment, but you'll hear a lot of people say, Yeah, but it's genetic, and it's like, so's your eye color, does make that a disease? Now I understand the words "disease" and "disorder" have a, are sort of fuzzy. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A definitionally, that is a word. But still, I don't know that this works. It's not like we have abnormal functioning, <coughs> probably, in people that have drug problems.
1: Okay. So
0: that's one approach, though. I'm not saying it's not harmful. Okay. Don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of harmful behavior that we wouldn't call disordered. We wouldn't call it stupid. We might call it, like, like, you know, I'm going to jump off a building without a parachute. That would be dumb. Or even with a parachute, really. I don't think it would. Anyway. Or it could just be harmful. Right? You can take LSD, and I told you about my friend that stood on top of the cop car and tried to rip the lights off. That's really stupid behavior, but it's also, and it's drug-induced. It's bad behavior. It's not good for anybody. They call it a disease, though. Okay, so if it's not a disease, maybe it's something physical, though. Now yeah, look, everything on some level is physical. Anybody who says it's not physical, it's psychological, doesn't understand that you have a brain that has chemistry in it. I mean, everything at some level must be physical. It must be. Someone saying something's all in your mind doesn't realize where your mind lives. Okay? So, originally, okay, another problem around the same time as alcohol becoming a real problem was uh, morphine. Morphine gets isolated uh, geez, just around the time of the American Civil War, so 1850s, 1860s, speaking of Ken Burns' documentaries, I'll work in baseball later, Um, and people are, and opium's a big thing, opium's a big thing. And while not everybody gets a hangover from alcohol, anybody who takes morphine seems unpleasant, seems to feel unpleasant the next day, or smokes opium. They seem to feel a little, a little sick. We get these withdrawal symptoms. And the notion then is that morphine produces a toxin, makes your body produce a toxin, autotoxin. right? body produce it later, but when you take it, it somehow counteracts the autotoxin. This is the notion. This isn't true, but it sounds good, right? It's the sounds sensible enough. This was found to be lacking. In other words, there's no such thing as autotoxin, but the idea that you need it because your body now can't function normally without the drug really stuck. You will hear people often say, for example, when quitting smoking cigarettes, oh, the physical dependence part, the physical you know, addiction is the hardest part. And that's after like a week. After that, it's all just psychological. And I always ask people, when did they become Cartesian dualists? <laughs> At which point they usually think that I'm a dick, because nobody talks like that. <laughs> you Cartesian dualist. So the idea sticks Let me still talk about this. Very popular. Today, in fact, you combine this with the disease model. This really accounts for the abnormality of all of it, though. That's the nice thing. i got abnormality in quotes. Probably shouldn't put it in quotes. Having a drug problem is not normal, statistically. Most of us don't have drug problems. It is not normal to have a drug problem. But people get really upset when you use the word normal. I guess you teach statistics, you know what the word normal means? It doesn't bother you. No value judgment from me. It's not normal to have a drug problem. It's not normal to have albinism. I'm not normal. It doesn't bother me. Ooh, I'm offensive. Um, the nice thing is this accounts for the abnormality. And you put this together with the disease model, and you have the, basically, this is what most people think about drug-taking, problem drug-taking behavior today. Isn't it? Right? Most of us sort of have this idea that, There's something in your body that needs it, and you're sick. Sounds pretty familiar, right? Questions so far? Okay, the problem is this autotoxin was supposedly only from depressants like alcohol and morphine. Uh, oh, you know what we'll do? Look at how old this idea is. People were already questioning the physical dependence model back in the 30s. Back in the 30s. It's a long time ago. Oh, also habits. So maybe you get a habit, too. So it's also a problem. Uh, you're going to get depend- uh, physical uh, dependence because you have a habit. It's a Oh, now we can include cocaine. I don't
1: know
0: marijuana. We want it but, I mean, cool. Oh, that's different kind of habituation than habituation with a uh, plesia or something. Okay. The problem is with stimulants don't produce these intense withdrawal symptoms as a rule, as compared to things like sleeping pills or alcohol. Or morphine. Are there withdrawal symptoms from cocaine and amphetamine? Yeah, but they aren't nearly as horrible. You can actually also just take a certain amount of drug and not get withdrawal symptoms.
1: Oh. Hmm.
0: Okay, we get no withdrawal symptoms. And see, dependence is defined as when you get withdrawal symptoms. That's all it is. Say you're dependent on cigarettes. Dependent on nicotine means you get anxious and angry and have cravings. Physical. If you've never smoked, you don't know what this feels like, but it's a weird combination of every want you've ever had in your life combined into one thing. And then it's like, I I could solve that. So, that, those are that, that's, that's withdrawal. Or, you know, a uh, hangover is kind of like mini-alcohol withdrawal. Mini-alcohol withdrawal. So I had like, uh, probably three gin and tonics last night watching TV. I love the hangover's. Right, so you can, I also don't think I'd bring enough to call Well, it's not a problem. I don't think it's a problem. I don't <laughs> talk to my family. <laughs> they don't, know, what's there? They don't say it whatsoever. <coughs> like that episode of The Simpsons, right? Like Marge is doing the checklist of Homer and alcoholic, and he, said, he says, do I alcohol for a the And He goes, do I? And he pulls a beer out of the back of the toilet. <laughs> I love that. Um, so we need a new idea. Because you're not, You don't have these withdrawal symptoms, like withdrawal symptoms from heroin, okay? which you can get rid of easily, take more heroin, (laughs) go away. Uh, You know, like goosebumps and feeling hot and cold flashes and all that kind of stuff, and you can get rid of it just by going, oh, it's gone, and I feel good, yay. So you don't have any of those, but you still maybe have a problem with some drug. I like to define a drug problem as it interferes with normal function. So suddenly you can't look at going to work, you can't, you have trouble doing daily things. Right? You can't do your job, you can't do regular, normal adult or perhaps child things. So it's always struck me if you drink every day, but it's after work and there's nothing it's not interfering with your life at all, you have a drinking problem. It's when you wake up in the morning and go, I can't go to work because I drank too much last night, you know, Tuesday night. That's a problem. right? That's a nice sort of operational way to define a drug problem because if it's not interfering with your daily life, I don't think it's a problem. It may be illegal, by the way, whatever you're doing, but it doesn't mean it's a problem, except under the law, Right? So if you're able to every night go home and drop acid, and you can go to work or go to school the next day, (laughs) look, and and you don't have anybody, any kids take care of or anything like that, and you're not burning down your house because you forgot that you turned the oven on and put hot oil on the stove or something, you don't have a drug problem as far as I'm concerned. You got a drug problem when it's like, you don't take your, you don't, I don't know, show up for your kid's parent teacher night because you're strung out somewhere. That's a drug problem. Or you can't hold down a job because you're drunk all the time or you're high all the time. That's a drug
1: problem.
0: That's a nice sort of operational way to define it for me rather than just like, again, because it gets kind of moral, right? It's like you drink every day?
1: Uh-huh.
0: You got a problem with that? I can't only follow it. Oh, okay. So if, that goes back to the sort of moral aspect. And I, I think this, the idea of is it a problem in your life takes it all all that moral stuff out of it. Right? Can you hold down a job? Can you take care of your family? Do normal adult or child things depending on if you're a so we need a new idea. Oh, ph- psychological dependence. This is when you need a drug, but you don't need it from the sort of physical cravings and the you know actual withdrawal symptoms. Things you see, like again, like goosebumps. Like you get horrible goosebumps when you withdraw from heroin. Why do you think it's called going cold turkey? Because you look like a cold turkey. That's all, honestly, where it comes from. Right. And if you've ever been around somebody who's quit smoking, they're no fun to be around for a couple of weeks. Right? Because they have actual symptoms. Things like anger. It's a real symptom. So we need a drug, but we don't need a drug. So this is when you crave a drug like you really want it. Craves not the problem with the word crave here is you can talk about cravings for things like nicotine and they're pretty intense. I'd probably say when you want a drug. So when you want a drug, even if it doesn't produce withdrawal symptoms, you're psychologically dependent. And what are you psychologically dependent? When you want a drug, oh no. Oh. So when are you psychologically dependent when you want a drug? That you don't that doesn't produce withdrawal symptoms. How do you know you're psychologically dependent? Oh, what does it mean when you're, you want a drug in a psychological thing? Uh, so, uh-oh. It goes in a circle. It's a circular thing. It's a problem. It's got no definition. This is why when you hear people talk about what's psychologically addictive, people say that about things, you say, what does that even mean in people die really have nothing? Right? So it's not a really useful term. So you got, we have abuse with drugs that don't produce withdrawal. There's not a lot of withdrawal from, well, cannabis. For some, you might get a little case of stupids the next day. There's nothing nasty. But we do know people. We must all know people who just, their whole life's goal is just to be high all the time. That's all they do. That's a drug problem. I'm not going to sit here and say, just because cannabis is legal, that it's safe. Ooh, it's great. Everybody get hot. No, it's a drug. You've got to be responsive. You're a grown-up. So you're going to hear addiction without dependence. Dependence meant meaning withdrawal symptoms. That's a weird thing. you could take drugs at a problem level but probably not have withdrawal symptoms from them. If you took acid every single day, I think you have a drug problem. And it obviously it's interfering with your life if you wake up in the morning and drop acid. Because you can't function normally. If you seen anybody or perhaps yourself to take an acid, you know that it, it, you can't function normally. That's a problem. But there's no withdrawal symptoms really from acid. Hmm. What if we actually looked at how your brain worked? (laughs) Oh, what a crazy idea. So, people used to think that you couldn't get animals addicted. You couldn't give a rat a drug problem. Because they're not moral, and this is a moral issue, damn it. Rats have no morality. And also, they can't get the, the disease because the disease is, of course, a human disease. Yeah. Well, that's stupid, but it's a very sort of early, ni- early 20th century view of the world. But you actually can, if you implant like a catheter into a rat and you use this a cannula to, right into a rat's brain, okay, and get them to push a bar for a drug. They'll do it. They'll totally do that. So you put implant. So you can go a catheter kind of deal right into the bloodstream, or you can go with a cannula right into the brain. And every time they push that bar, they get, oh, let's go with morphine. <laughs> They'll do
1: that.
0: They'll do that at the excuse of everything else.
1: They'll do no a problem.
0: You can push this bar for more morphine or this bar for food. Screw food, man. I don't need food without morphine. That's the rats. That's what rats think like that. That's how they think in English. It's a sort of flat Ontario accent like I have. <laughs> Most people don't realize that. So, Thompson and Schuster, this is back into the 60s, so this is literally the year before I was born, found that rats will work for drugs. They'll work for opiates and they'll work for amphetamines. And they'll do it at the excuse of other. Things in their lives, and they'll do it without withdrawal symptoms, because they're getting given very small amounts. But you give a rat a choice here between a food, one little bar they push gives them food, and the other little bar gives them morphine, and they'll go with the morphine, which is a bad choice. So it' actually work for drugs. So, okay. This also seems circular because I'm saying that if what the reason the animals work for these drugs is because they're reinforcing, right? You all took or most of you've taken intro psych, and you know about the idea of reinforcement. And reinforcement is just it's going back to B.F. Skinner, and you now here's a circular definition. What is a reinforcer? A reinforcer is an event that causes an increase in responding. What causes an increase in responding? A reinforcement. Uh Uh-oh, that's also circular. Except that we know the brain circuit involved here. This is the nice thing. So because we know about dopamine and how it activates, there's a dopaminergic circuit in the limbic system that connects the ventral tegmental area to the medial forebrain bundle to the nucleus accumbens. We know that's a thing. We know that exists. And we know that is activated by dopamine, like it runs on dopamine, but we also know that that circuit is activated whenever something feels good. When things are reinforcing, that circuit's activated. So now we don't need a circular definition of reinforcement because we say it's something that activates the reward system. So, for example, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) So, for example, when you find something funny, when you laugh, right? So every time Archer goes phrasing and you laugh, maybe that's just me. Are we not doing phrasing anymore? Um, This is activated. When you're watching Family Guy, that's activated. Strangely for some people when they're watching South Park, that's accurate. I still find it funny. I see why people find it funny. I just don't find it funny. Or when you listen to music you like. It. Right? Speaking of things I like, you know all almost all all new country music, I feel that way. It's like though I don't even see why people like it. We should band together and have that band. Let's band. You want to band something? All country music passed by
1: 1970.
0: Um, but my son, my son has these has really eclectic tastes. He likes everything. So he'll like, be listening to really hardcore gangster rap, and then he'll listen to like, early 70s birth of heavy metal music, and then it's some shitty country song. It's like, can you just do something? I shouldn't stifle his musical but can you turn it down or perhaps the other two were fine when you have a good meal when you have sex when you have an orgasm when you take heroin when you get an A on a test when you come out of a test and you feel like you've done well hmm so now it's not circular. So morphine to the uh, paraaqueductal ventral gray area leads to dependence. In other words, if I give you morphine, and I would, can't do it to you, but I would do it to a rat, into that part of your brain, you end up with the dependence. You end up with the withdrawal symptoms. If I give you morphine directly to your nucleus accumbens, it actually doesn't. It just leads to reinforcement. So this is a special thing, this, re- this circuit Okay? And it is activated when things feel good. and it's got a lot of great biological functions so it'll, it, it makes you want to reproduce it makes you want to have a good meal it makes you enjoy fresh air and clean water but drugs take advantage of that
1: right? Okay,
0: so we have a physiological basis now for why people do drugs to excess. We understand why people do drugs at all, right? It feels good. So it reinforces the behavior you just did. So why do people... You pick any drug you want. Pick one that many of us have experience with. Why do people drink alcohol? Right? And I don't mean drink alcohol because it's like I want a, something neat and different, and it's uh, I don't know. And I've spent ninety dollars on a bottle of scotch, and I'm gonna have, I'm gonna sip it. I mean, why would people do shots? Do some sort of Jagermeister shot? Because that doesn't taste good. No one likes the way the it tastes. And if you do, you're lying to me. You're just a liar. You're a lying liar from liar stand which is the country of liars. Because it makes you feel good. It operates, through, it op- operates this reward system. Simple. Simple. And you, like I said, you can get non-humans to do this. Uh, Schuster, Schuster before... So you get drugs not causing withdrawal. In other words, rats will work for drugs with no dependence. And they'll do it at the expense of other things. You can get a drug, a rat to have drug problems, as I mentioned. Um, it's hard to get rats to take things orally. So if you want to be exactly like people, like it's hard to get rats to take Valium. Or it's hard to get rats to snort cocaine. They, they can't cover up one nostril with their little paws, they can't reach it. <laughs> Or to drink alcohol, because we think a lot about alcohol, right? This all comes back to alcohol. Um, and it, it turns out, in fact, that Pickens and Thompson, 68, again, the old work, found out that drug taking behavior follows many of the laws of learning. If you haven't taken the learning course, don't worry about it. The point is, there are certain things that happen in basically every animal and how they learn. And drug taking acts like any other behavior, and the drug itself acts like any other reinforcement. And people will say to me when I, when I explain this to them that they say, so you're saying it's just conditioning and it's... yeah <laughs> yeah it's just offering conditioning all it is I'm saying drug ta- taking behavior is no different than a pigeon pecking a key or a whole lot of other behaviors that you do One of the interesting things that this does, the idea of looking at it as a a reinforcement based thing, a positive reinforcement based model, is that it explains, there's a paradoxical thing about drug taking. (coughs)
1: Because
0: there's a positive side to drug taking and a negative side. Positive side, you go out drinking with your friends, it's fun. You have a few drinks, right? You, You laugh, it's good. So that sounds fun. Negative side: you wake up in the morning and you have a hangover. Hangovers are no fun. There's probably some weirdo who likes hangovers. There's seven and a half billion people in the world. He's probably got his own website. That you have to join too. Pay PayPal. Hangoverforum.com. Where people talk about how great hangovers are. Like, don't be surprised if there's a subreddit about that somewhere. But so. But there's negative sides. And you will see this. And how many of us have heard our friends who don't drink very, what's the word I'm looking for, self-righteously say, I can't believe you do that. Look at how you feel right now. And, you, and at that point, usually you go, yeah, you know, you've got a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of roll over and go, I'm never drinking again. Right? And then about 6 o'clock, you get a text from somebody, and you go, yeah, let's go out drinking. <laughs> I can't just do this. Weird. So the negative part, we keep drinking even though it's negative. We know it's bad. People who smoke, and there's got to be smokers in this room, it makes you cough. It's not like anybody in here is going to get heart disease or lung cancer anytime soon, even if you smoke, because that happens after years and years of it typically. Typically, I'm not giving you advice to start smoking because you're young. It's cool. It's hip. The kids like it. It makes you look grown up, rebellious. But so you know if you smoke cigarettes, you end, end up eventually like <coughs> a lot of that stuff. I stopped smoking when I could hear myself breathing. I'm like, one night I'm like, ooh, I'm I feel fine, except I hurt. You. No, I probably should stop this behavior. It's bad for me. Which is why I'm constantly eating fisherman's friend candies. For six months I paired these with cigarettes. C S U S. I'm a psychologist. (laughs) So, reinforcement works like this. The most recent behavior, like the behavior and then the thing right after it that's a reinforcer, it reinforces the behavior right before it. Reinforces drinking, reinforces smoking cigarettes, reinforces putting (laughs) a needle in your arm and shooting yourself up with heroin, reinforces. Assembling and then a, 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 a shisha from the Middle East and then smoking marijuana through it. Some of these may be personal examples. <laughs> <laughs> or hookah, called it sometimes. It makes you feel very uh, sophisticated and cosmopolitan, and then you realize it's really just a complicated bomb. <laughs> it's really just a complicated bomb. <laughs> People have been doing this for thousands of years. I am very cool. <laughs> so it reinforces that behavior. It doesn't reinforce the behavior. The behavior leader doesn't matter. Right? So it explains why people that the negative effects, the horrible effects that happen hours or days or la- or a day later, they don't affect. They aren't affected by uh, so much. Right? By the... I don't want to put this. That's not what's being reinforced. What's being reinforced is the drug-taking behavior. This actually... The choice in taking a drug depends on the available reinforcement. And Heyman's done work with... Uh, Rats, and I think monkeys, um, showing that it actually follows what's called the matching law, which just says you, you, you distribute your behavior based on how reinforcing the different behaviors, how much the different behaviors are being reinforced. The important thing to note here is that other, so it's about the other beha- other things that are available that can be reinforcing This also fits with a lot of other behavior, not just one of the things I like about this idea is it fits with other problem behaviors that aren't about drug taking. If you spend too much, if you spend so much time playing Red Dead Redemption 2 that you don't come to class, that's a problem. Right? That's a problem. It's interfering with your functioning in daily life. If all you can think of is doing that, and you want to get home and do that, that's all you do. You know, that's a problem. It's reinforcing to play the game. How do you think Microsoft and Sony get you to play video games? They give up meaningless little rewards. Achievement unlock. You will literally work for achievements or trophies if you're PlayStation. And you know fully they actually do nothing. They are useless points. You can't trade them in for anything. But I mean, my gamer scores passed 40,000 the other day. And I was like, I was very proud of it. And it's sad, because I'm a grown ass man. But I've <laughs> <laughs> been on Xbox Live for 14 years. See, the thing is but I don't think I have a video game problem because it doesn't interfere with me doing things in my daily life. I have enough money that I can afford to buy video games. Right? And I have enough time in the day, and I've planned things out well enough that I get my work done before, for example, I go and try to upgrade my camp in Red Dead Redemption 2. Cooked a rabbit in that game the other day. What a... And I'm sitting there thinking, this is great. I'm thinking I'm pretending to cook a rabbit by, by pushing the X button. And I'm excited. God, this is a good game. So it's gonna depend on the available reinforcers. The neat thing is here that this is gonna explain a lot of behavior beyond drugs, and if there's a couple other cool things, we'll get to them in just a sec. So what if I told you that I told you that rats will work for morphine? or amphetamine or whatever, at the expense of food. And they will. But what if we let the rats live in a luxurious pleasure palace such as this? Pleasure palace was a strange choice of words. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) It was just weird. It sounded suddenly like the playboy mansion for rats. Um, So rats are either caged in a standard cage with morphine available, or they live communally in the rat park and morphine's building. Oh, they take some morphine. Sure, why not? But do they take as much morphine? No. Guess who has no problem when you remove the morphine? The <laughs> rat right, park. Guess who has a problem when you take the morphine out of their cage? Caged individually. So they have a problem. They 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 Behaviorally, all kinds of issues. You know what's cool about this model? Even though it's a physiological model, is it explains lots of neat stuff. Not only it explains drug taking, but other problem behaviors. It could be, I don't know, spending too much time reading freaking Facebook. It could, it can explain. I don't know, what's the other thing you hear about a lot nowadays? Uh, Internet porn addiction. It explains people having video game problems. Right? Those are real problems, by the way. Right? They're real things. I think we'd all hesitate to call someone who plays too much video games having a disease. Most of us would. Right? But it's problem behavior nonetheless. I think the name doesn't matter a great deal, frankly. This also explains why people of, on average, of lower socioeconomic status have more drug problems. There is there are fewer things that are reinforcing the people with, of lower socioeconomic status, right? There's more, less stuff available to have fun. When you're working three jobs, just to have enough money on the, to get to the next paychecks, right? There's not a lot in your life to take joy in to get reinforcement from, is it? right? However, if you have enough money that you can say, well, I'll go and buy a video game system. That'll be fun. We could watch the, one of these many streaming services or cable channels we have. Right. There's all kinds of things you can do that are fun. Let's go to a movie. Let's go out. Let's just do Whatever. When you have very few options, everyone knows something that's going to make you feel good, and it's available just down the street at a store that says Lick bowl, on it. L C B O. My son called it the Lick Bow. I don't want to go to the Lick Bow. <laughs> We're going to the Lick Bow, the it! Come with me. Don't <laughs> touch anything. Daddy doesn't want to have to buy all the liquor. <laughs> I was in there just the other day because I'm. Always oh, the liquor store. And the uh, person said, uh, did you have trouble finding anything? I said, I've memorized the store. I'm in here every Saturday. Oh, yeah, it's true. So this is neat because we have something that can also explain the fact that poor socioeconomic status people, on average, have more drug problems than non-poor socioeconomic status. It tells us that if we give people opportunities to have, do things that are reinforcing, they're less likely to have problems with drugs. It tells us that if we, it tells us something about treatment. Because, while we don't want to call it a disease, we still need to treat people's behavior. Um, We should give, show people they can take joy, take reinforcement in other things. And that's all because we know of a connection between the ventral tegmental area the medial forebrain bundle and the nucleus accumbens. Yes, please. Do we need to know the names of those and can you say them more slowly? Yes, I can, and yes. Uh, (laughs) Ventral tegmental area, ventral, just like ventral, tegmental, it's all just like it sounds, Um, tegmental. And an area, if you can't spell area, you can leave. Um, (laughs) And then medial, (laughs) middle, forebrain, Bundle, again, you should be able to spell bundle, uh, and then nucleus accumbens—the only one that's weird. There's accumbens, and it's spelled like this: a c c u m b e n s. And it autocorrects to all kinds of funny things. <laughs>
1: Accumulation
0: is what I've seen it do. I think my phone and my computer now know it, but it took a long time. So, and it runs on dopamine. And every drug class we talk, we'll talk about one of those three areas. You'll find there are receptors for that drug in one of those three areas. I'm going to guess everyone in here does some kind of drug. Is there anyone in here not do any drugs, at all, that we would call drugs? Drink coffee? No. Eat chocolate? Chocolate. chocolate has caffeine in it.
1: Because
0: if you don't eat chocolate at all, then maybe you got me. It's pretty rare. right? I don't mean at a problem level. I'm not saying who here doesn't have a heroin problem. I mean, it it's not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying most of us ingest some... And again, you, we may be doing it for not... Remember I talked about you can take drugs, but they, you're not taking them primarily for the drug-taking thing. So for the stimulator-depressant qualities, like having some chocolate, you're ingesting drugs. You're ingesting, doesn't really call a drug, you're ingesting nicotine. But you're not probably doing it for that reason. Most of us don't eat chocolate because it gives us a kick. Most of them, because we just like to taste the chocolate. Hey,
1: Halloween. Right?
0: Um, so most of us do ingest drugs of some sort, though a lot of people say they don't. And if they don't drink coffee, probably aren't right okay so let's look at some drugs this is one way to classify drugs it's not the best it's not the worst either it's a way we're going to look at these so we have sedative hypnotics um sleeping pills. sedative calms you down hypnotic puts you to sleep alcohol gets its own classification uh, antipsychotic drugs, antidepressants. These are, of course, for against the act uh, against the, the symptoms of schizophrenia uh, and the symptoms of depression. They are sometimes off-label used for other things as well. Narcotic analgesics. An analgesic means it kills pain. A narcotic means it maybe puts you to sleep. The word narcotic has a really good pharmacological use. The problem is that under the law, a lot of things are classified as narcotics, and they aren't narcotics. So we don't use the word narcotic uh, analgesics as much anymore, and that's simply because people think cocaine's a narcotic, and it's literally the opposite of narcotic. Under the law, blah, 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 Narcotics Control Act. I watched the, you ever watch that show, Border Security? You know where people are trying to smuggle sausages across the border? It seems like every episode. <laughs> every episode, somebody's caught. It. Like, why? we have sausages in Canada. You can go buy them. Why are you trying to bring it in? But I've seen them say, you know, uh, have you taken any narcotics? And, and you often see people kind of looking, and they, they're not really sure. And then they'll say, you know, like cocaine or... It's like, and I, I would, I would be, it'd be so hard for me to turn off my pedantic... Mode, and but you know those actually aren't narcotics, but that wouldn't be helpful. But under the law, a lot of everything that's an illegal drug that's fun is called a narcotic. So really, though, this is heroin. So this is things like morphine and codeine. Basically, these are opiates. So now we tend to say opiates. Everybody knows what that means. Second, motor stimulants is your cocaine, There's your meth, regular old amphetamine, pseudoephedrine, a lot of stuff there. Nicotine, well, we know what that is. It comes in cigarettes. I mean, it's from tobacco, but it comes to, to, to cigarettes with the delivery mechanism. Caffeine almost only, well, the biggest way, way we get it is, is, is um, coffee, but also soft drinks, chocolate bars, things like that. By the way, caffeine, if, if, if the one drug you do is caffeine, it's probably the safest of all of these. It's pretty safe. Hallucinogenics, That's LSD. Anything that produces hallucinations. LSD, primary as its primary thing. One can, depending on the strain of weed one is smoking, hallucinate. You know, you could have out of body experiences. You could sort of hear things that aren't there, etc. But that's more about hallucinogens. And usually with LSD, they're visual. But not always. Uh, peyote is a little different, or saibon, stuff like that. mescaline they're all a little different. And, but the kind of hallucinations they create. Okay? How many people here are, are, are dependent on a drug? Actually get withdrawal symptoms from a drug? anybody here wake up with a with a, with a, with a headache because they hadn't had coffee yet. Yeah, that's what that is. You know, about 190 million North Americans are dependent on caffeine. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not a big deal, and it's adult humans are really, really efficient at metabolizing caffeine. It shouldn't bother you. It's safe when you're pregnant. It's, it's one of the few drugs that you can enjoy, pretty much guilt-free. It might keep you up. That's the, the downside, at which that can ne- ne- mess up your next day. That's about it. Right. I'm not taking like I'm, talk- I'm not talking about like snorting caffeine pills here. I'm talking about drinking coffee. Okay. Let's talk about these different drugs. How they work. How do centers work? Um, they modify the effect of GABA. Remember what GABA is? GABA is gamma-aminobutyric acid. It is a an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it lets chlorine in. It opens a chlorine ion channel. This makes the next neuron. So you get what? You get negative postsynaptic potentials. So it makes it a little harder for the next neuron to fire for a period. So. so Sedatives are positive GABA modulators. So they basically are making GABA more effective. They make it work better. And so we're talking here about benzodiazepines and barbiturates. So the first drug I talked about in the class, right, last class, was diazepam or valium. That's a that's a benzodiazepine, a barbiturate. And that's how it is spelled. It is not a barbiturate. It drives me f- crazy that people mispronounce that word. It's up there with nuclear. There's an R there. Pronounce it. Barbiturate. I, I don't know, understand anything. I just how can you see that and go, wow, oh, barbiturate? Oh, a little-known silent R in English. So silent R's. I'm sorry, I get really worked up over things that I shouldn't get worked up. About. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's whole accent. That's okay, right? If, if everybody does it that way, then I'm okay. But they would go, Ruh. they would still put it because it's in the middle of
1: the word, right? Yeah. because yeah. well, they'll not use it. My kid's is I mean, we awesome. yeah.
0: But the R still doing something. You can hear, hear that there's an R there. It's, not, it's, it's, it's changing the A I think. I'm not a linguist. I know somebody's a linguist. I'm going to ask him. I really am going to ask Henry. Uh, okay. Why do I know a, lingu- a cognitive linguist neuroscientist from Israel? Internet? <laughs> that's, that's weird. Okay, here's a picture. So this is a um, GABA receptor. So a barbiturate receptor here, a GABA receptor here, and a benzodiazepine receptor here. This is saying that in high enough doses, barbiturates can actually open up a chlorine ion channel. So this is a GABA receptor, this whole thing, okay? There's your GABA, it opens this ion channel. The benzodiazepine receptor Modulates this, makes it work a little bit better. This, in enough do- high enough dose, can actually open this ion channel on its own, which, which is true, shows you that barbiturates are more dangerous than benzodiazepines. Because benzodiazepines, while well, they can be dangerous in large levels. Don't no me. Are not they, they? aren't opening that ion channel by themselves. Barbiturates and they, by by themselves can open an ion channel. Okay. So this makes you feel relaxed, et cetera. Note that there are benzodiazepine receptors and barbiturate receptors in your brain. That should tell you something. It should tell you we make neurotransmitters and neuromodulators ourselves that are very similar to these drugs. What we tend to do when we make psychoactive drugs is usually by mistake, we make something that's very similar to our neurotransmitter or a neuromodulator that our nervous system already makes. Okay. Alcohol. Alcohol is not that well understood. Alcohol is likely the reason that humans, literally, the first humans who stopped being hunter-gatherers and started living in towns. This is 6,000 years B.C. kind of thing, or B.C.E. if you prefer. These are people at the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and today what we would call Iraq literally at where Baghdad is. It's the cradle of civilization. The first people ever to stop being hunter-gatherers and start living in towns. They stopped and they started growing things. And one of the things they were growing was barley. And they were growing barley, probably not to make bread, but to make beer. The archaeological evidence seems pretty clear now that people stopped being hunter-gatherers and started living in towns and having agriculture so they could make beer. So humans like alcohol. Alcohol. And we've been ingesting alcohol since even before that, but it still isn't that well understood, which is kind of crazy. We do know that it depresses <coughs> function of the of an ion channel, and glutamate receptors. Glutamate members excitatory, so let in sodium, and this slows down the functions. So you're not going to let in as much sodium, so you can see how it slows you down. The brain kind of adjusts after chronic use. In other words, making more glutamate receptors, which probably explains some of the weird withdrawal symptoms like hallucinations people get, uh, that kind of stuff, right? The proverbial pink elephant, And we know this because this drug, RO154513, is an alcohol antagonist. It stops alcohol from working. And what it does is it makes glutamate channels, ion channels, work better. So we put all that together. This, by the way, is not like a pill you take, just take one of those, and then you can drink all night and still be James Bond. Those pills don't exist. Okay?
1: Not
0: a thing. The way James Bond actually deals with this, if you think about it, is he orders his martini shaken, not stirred, which dilutes the gin more. He's drinking a weaker martini. So they said on the West Wing, and I believe everything President Bartlett says, because I'm pretending for the next few years that he's really the president. So alcohol is a weird one. We don't really understand how it works. It's crazy. Alcohol is also weird in that the... Excretion of alcohol—we don't measure alcohol in half-life. It's—it's constant. It's not like a logarithmic curve, which is really weird. Antipsychotics. Okay. These work. Their name tells you what they do. They are for treating the symptoms of schizophrenia, of psychosis. Schizophrenia is not, of course, multiple personality disorders, or. What do they call it now? Something identity, something or other. Associative identity, identity disorder. There are. It's such a rare disorder that it's it's controversial as to does it exist, right? Most cases are Yeah, and they're, they tend to go up after something in the media talks about multiple personalities, like the movie Sybil, um, Two Faces of Eve, another one. But so they may not exist. Whereas schizophrenia is real. Okay, so schizophrenia is when you have disordered thinking. You have paranoia, delusions, grandeur. What we would commonly call—I mean, this sounds—what's uh, the word I'm looking for? Uh, insensitive, and it isn't meant that way. When we think of crazy people, we're thinking of people with schizophrenia. Okay, so schizophrenia is a psychological disorder wherein you you, you feel. You know, very often things like delusions of grandeur, paranoia, you hear voices. The hallucinations aren't visual. Right? They're auditory. So you aren't seeing things necessarily. In fact, almost never are you seeing things, usually hearing things, hearing voices. If you've seen A Beautiful Mind, that's a pretty good depiction of schizophrenia, except that he's seeing things, not hearing things. But the director made a. I think it's Ron Howard, right? Made a choice. You can't actually do auditory hallucinations well on film, but visual ones are great. Also, you can make people, you can string people along for three quarters of the movie who think all these people he's seeing are real. Unless you're me and you're watching it and you take a piece of paper and write down paranoid schizophrenia and fold it up and just put it on the table, and your wife says, "What's that?" And you say, don't, "Don't look at it." <laughs> I used to just say things at movies and spoil them because I figured them out. So now I just write things down. It's horrible living with me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, I mean, and if you've had experience with schizophrenic people, it's very disturbing, right? There was a guy when I was a postdoc in our lab, and um, he was from... uh, Russia and uh, hardly spoke any English, but we were trying to be nice. We brought him to the lab, and he was seemed okay. But then he said, uh, one day he just showed up sitting in somebody's. In light. he was an older guy too. He was like in his late 30s, and he was just showed up sitting in this young graduate student, woman graduate student's office one day in the dark at 10 o'clock at night. Now most schizophrenics aren't violent, and he wasn't either. He was probably he was not dangerous, but it's disturbing. And he thought this woman was his girlfriend. And he came to me one day and said that he, uh, he said, you broke me with, i got to give her a fake name, uh, Susie. And I said, I did what? No, you broke with her with me. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. She was my girlfriend. And I thought, there's no way she was your girlfriend. You haven't changed your shirt in three weeks. We can all smell you. It was true, by the way. But I went and talked to her because I didn't know. And I said, well, This guy said this thing. And she goes, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, OK, good. So I just want to make sure it's not I to do it. And then he told me, well, Of course, I can uh, hear you. I understand this because I can hear your thoughts through the walls. And I went, oh, 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 I see. I see. I see. I see. Immigrants are implanted with a chip. It's like, Oh, man, you even got the chip thing. Which is in Beautiful Mind. It's a common delusion, actually. So it was funny because for the longest time, all these psychologists that were all like, doing like, animal cognition experiments, and like there's neuroscientists on the floor and all this stuff, and like, no one ever didn't occur to all these psychologists, I think he's got parents' We all just went, God, he's gross and weird. And we shouldn't know that. And we did. He eventually got some treatment, uh, ended up going back home. Uh, to live with his mom, but it was really disturbing. The nice thing is you know that someone with schizophrenia, they can be given these drugs, these antipsychotic drugs, and what they do is they block D2 receptors. There's basically four kinds of dopamine receptors, and they're called D1, D2, D3, and D4. Um, They block dopamine receptors, and especially D2 receptors, and in fact, the correlation between D2 binding efficiency and the uh, ED50 of antipsychotic drugs is in essence one, which doesn't happen in anything. It's like you're doing physics or something. This doesn't happen in biology. This doesn't happen in psychology. It's pretty rare. They also block uh serotonin, and histamine. I think I, I think I said earlier in the course that one of the first attempts to deal pharmacologically with Schizophrenia was with antihistamines. They also block
1: uh,
0: norepinephrine receptors They cause an increase in norepinephrine synthesis. So that kind of balances itself out. As you can see here, there's the, it's it's logarithmic. So I mean, I I should have said it's logarithmically if you do a a, uh, a transformation on both uh, ED50 and binding efficiency. But in essence, it's one. Straight line. It's beautiful. So you get a straight line relationship between the two. Um, the key brain regions that are affected here, the mesolimbic dopamine system, that's the reward system. See, the thing is, these drugs are not any fun. No one is taking antipsychotic drugs recreationally. You go downtown to a bad part of town. There's no one stopping you going, want to buy some chlorpromazine. It doesn't happen. Because, look, it actually blocks how the reward system works. Getting people to stay on this medication is difficult. Because now food doesn't taste as good. Now your sex drive goes away. Now nothing, there's no joy in your life, but you're not hearing any voices. So it's a hard thing to do. So some of what's happening with therapy after you get people taking the drugs is getting people to try to take joy in things even though there's not a whole lot of joy in their life left. It's a difficult thing. And also, get them on a, on a regimen of keeping to take the drugs so they can hold down a job. Etc. Right? And I, there's got to be somebody in this room that knows someone who is schizophrenic, schizophrenic and you know that it can be a battle but also know that there could be a lot of success stories too. So it affects the mesolimbic dopamine system, most of the nigrostriatal system. Um, this is a problem because atypical well, it's a problem because if you block dopamine in the nigrostriatal system, it, it messes with movement and it gives you Parkinson's-like symptoms. But a, what are called atypical antipsychotic drugs, or these, these second-generation antipsychotic drugs, which are um, don't have as much effect at the nigrostriatal areas. They're really concentrating on other parts of the brain. So there aren't nearly as many problems with the, what are called, uh, sorry, with the, uh, with these side effects. Questions so far? You can see how it's hard to get people to take a drug that stops the thing in their brain that makes things feel good from working. It's going to be hard. Please.
1: Is this similar to the medication you would take if you
0: had bipolar disorder? It depends on what the medication is. <laughs> uh, people take for bipolar very often. People are taking uh, lithium salts, uh, so which are very cheap actually and work, and we we don't know how. And um, an antidepressant, very often. I've not heard of antipsychotics used for bipolar, but they might be used off-label for it? I'm not sure. Because they're used for other things. Big problem, like I said, it's hard to get people to take these drugs. They're no fun. Like, and I mean, it's not like... Look, taking antiviral drugs when you have a viral infection isn't fun either, but the virus goes away. It doesn't... You know, I had this eye infection last year and I was taking these drugs and suddenly I could see it of my left eye again. That was great, but it wasn't like also it made my life feel like it had no meaning. You might go, eh, maybe I'll just not have some vision out of my left eye. So that's a tough choice, right? So it's not a fun drug to take, but at least I saw saw the light at the end of the tunnel, bad choice of words. Whereas with these drugs, you don't hear voices anymore. Or if it does work for bipolar, control your mood swings, but now food tastes horrible? Like, that's pretty bad. Maybe I'd prefer (laughs) mood swings. When I say mood swings, that's not what, I mean, bipolar is way more than, oh, you're just depressed. I hate that we do that. We take words that are used for psychological disorders that we use in daily life. I'm feeling so depressed. No, you're not. You're sad, man. I'm a little bit OCD. No, you're not. You didn't want things to be messy. That doesn't mean you have obsessive-compulsive disorder. We don't say things like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit. It's like I've got a little bit of multiple sclerosis today. Oh, I've got a touch of of, of, of diabetes today. No one says that. It furthers the stigmatization of mental disorders. Anyway, that was a little aside that did not answer your question and led to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've not heard of that. But it, I, I'll, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to find out if, if, if there are use they're used off label for those. Because they're used off-label for a lot of things. Yeah. Antidepressants. Speaking of depression, uh, how do these work? I say MAOIs are obvious how they work. It's obvious in the name. Monoamine, remember what those neurotransmitters are, are? So dopamine, serotonin, a bunch of others. The monoamines, right? Monoamine oxidase inhibitors monoamine oxidase and any biologist in this room will tell you that anything that ends in A's is a as an enzyme it's breaking down monoamine neurotransmitters right there's monoamine oxidase everybody's got it it breaks that it actually helps you digest food it's also in your brain helping to break down uh, uh, excess I guess. Um, monoamine neurotransmitters But there's a whole idea out there that the lack of monoamines, not enough monoamines, is one of the problems with depression. So if we stop the thing that breaks it down, there's more available. Does that make sense? Right? So that's how they work. Take neuropharmacology, and I can tell you all about how they work in much more detail. Take it next year when it's pretty sure. We just approved the roster. I think that's on next year. Tricyclic antidepressants, which are as common as they used to be, they stop reuptake of all monoamines. So they're doing the same thing. So there's now extra monoamine neurotransmitters floating around in the synapse. There's no re, not as much reuptake. And the name selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor should tell you what a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor does. It inhibits the reuptake of serotonin, hence the name. The notion here is that serotonin is the key in depression. The effects, by the way, on your neurochemistry are immediate when you think you've got As soon as they get absorbed, But the antidepressant effects take days or weeks. And anybody who is on antidepressants or taking antidepressants knows that when you first were on your medication, it took a couple of weeks sometimes, or even maybe a few days before it was like, oh, I don't feel better yet. Right? Whereas think about something like antipsychotics. If you are hearing voices, and you take antipsychotics, in 20 minutes, the voices are gone. Like and the paranoia stops. Like it, 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 it's 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 that's a dopamine problem. This is not just a serotonin problem or just a monoamine, monoamine, <coughs> the monoamine the neurotransmitter problem. There's something else going on with depression. The These drugs are effective. They work, right? But they're not. Unlike schizophrenia, this is not the whole story. It's not just serotonin or just monoamine neurotransmitters. There's something else going on, and we don't know yet schizophrenia we know right you will hear people say that say schizophrenia is just well it's just eccentric people being pushed down by the man no it's d2, it's a d2 receptor problem dude. don't make more of it this is different depression we don't really understand it's not as understood as people think it should be or it should be and we are, it was definitely as we know how does lithium work we give lithium to people lithium chloride salts of lithium Very cheap do people with it stabilizes the mood in people with that are on the manic part of bipolar disorder, so have having manic episode. Depression is having no feelings whatsoever, no affect, flat affect. Right? It's not being sad; it's being completely flat, and it's being having an outlook that says that everything I do, I'll fuck up. Right? People that are in the throes of depression actually don't tend to be the people. That's as not as common as uh, when people commit um, suicide. They commit suicide when they start getting better because they get just enough self efficacy to think I could probably pull this off, which is weird. The opposite of that is mania. You might think, wait a minute, those still sound like fun people. They're doing exactly the opposite: hyper, excited, and they'll go and spend all their money. And they'll stand, and they'll go make all kinds of crazy decisions. And they're really fun until you challenge them and say, you shouldn't do this. You just let everybody in this bar Drinks. You don't have that much money. Also, you're married, and you're about to have unprotected sex with that person. Don't do that. And then that's bad. So you see, it's like it's the opposite of depression, but it's like all kinds of emotions at once. Neither of those are good. Neither of those are good. How does lithium work to control um, mania? Because it does very effectively. We don't really know. It does, and we're very happy. It's also exceedingly dangerous. Like the uh, therapeutic index here is about two and a half. So, about two and a half times the amount you take to control your uh, mania can kill you. So, you go for blood tests constantly when you're taking this stuff, at first, especially. I watched a guy, when I was teaching in Newfoundland, a guy came up to me after class. He said, was literally, a lecture like this. And he said, so you know a lot about drugs? And I said, sure. And he said, well, well I just started uh, taking um, lithium for bipolar. I just got diagnosed, and I'm feeling so much better. I'm doing better in school. It's great. He said, but I feel kind of, you know, I don't feel very well. And I looked at him, and I thought, at first, it was just the lighting in the room. I said, dude, you're green. He's, he basically was going, it was, he had lithium poisoning. And I said, let's go somewhere where we can make a phone call. And uh, this was before, but he carried cell phones. This is about 15, 18 years ago. We found a payphone and we called somebody. We called his dad because his dad worked right around the corner. And his dad took him to the hospital and he was fine. He got an A in the course. So that was great. But he was like, oh, it was like scary because he. And I said, did you take forget take a lithium pill that you took two. He said, yeah, I said, no, it's not what you do. And a lot of pills, you do that, right? You will even say on the side, if you forget a dose, take two. You don't do that with lithium because taking two can kill you. Taking one is, oh, that's the right dose. Take two. Well, if the LD50, if the uh, therapeutic index is two and a half, you're getting damn close to the, you know, a little scary. Alright, that was a weird way to end the class. Uh we'll finish Happy up for today birthday. and we'll be back with the stuff on the Monday. Wednesday. Down the road, ten from Monday. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, The music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, (laughs) lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.ac.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if we call them show notes or blog posts so uh, you know buy these people's music they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody and we'll see you next time.